So today we start our our new sermon series that will take us uh, through to June. And as I was was pondering where we've been, our current situation, and the mission God is calling us to here in Bergenfield, it quickly became clear that we should start at the beginning of the early church. So we're going to do a study on Acts, which we'll be calling the Acts of the Apostles. So we pick up today in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Our passage gives the account of the ascension of when Jesus goes back up into heaven. Today we'll be looking at his final proclamation to his disciples and how that proclamation pertains to us today. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So this is Luke writing, and he's actually referencing his book of Luke. So uh, until he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gifts my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. There's a lot going on in this particular passage. And actually, President Larson hit on some of it last week. And if you'd like to hear his message, you can check that out on our website. We've we've got it up on on the SoundCloud there, so you you can check that out. So we're not going to pay as much attention to verses 1 through 7. He did, a, he did a pretty good job at addressing quite a bit of that uh, last week. But instead, we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 10, particularly verse 8. Now, we've looked at this verse before. We spent some time on it back in January, but we're, we're going to look at it again. And we're going to key in on the term witness. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come on us with power and we will be his witnesses. So what does it mean What does it mean to witness or to be a witness? To be a witness is to give a testimony to an event. 
Those Jesus is sending here just before his ascension into heaven were eyewitnesses to the events that took place. They saw the miracles he witnessed to the event. They saw the, the miracles that he performed. They sat underneath his teaching. They were there at his death. They physically encountered him after his resurrection. They were witnesses to all that he said and did here on earth. So today, we, you know, we didn't have that kind of access to Jesus, right? I mean, we weren't there, obviously, this is years ago, thousands of years ago. So how can we still be witnesses? We here in, in 2018 are witnesses to the truths of Scripture and how God has been working in our lives, but not only in our lives, but how he has been working throughout time. How he is at work in nature. How he is at work in the world around us. Author Stephen King is no theologian. And even he has this to say about his faith in God. He says, if you say, well, okay, I don't believe in God. There's no evidence of God. Then you're missing the stars in the sky. You're missing the sunrises and sunsets. And you're missing the fact that bees pollinate all of these crops and keep us alive. And the way that everything seems to just work together. Everything is sort of built in a way that to me suggests intelligent design. We can look at nature. We can look at history. We can look at our own walk of faith. You can stand on a hill. Sometimes I tell people, you know, when you're, when you're going through hard times, when you're dealing with, with struggle, with whatever it may be, temptation or, or persecution or just doubts, just sin, you can stand and you can just look back at your life. You can see how God has been faithful. You can see how God has been at work. That encourages us. It encourages me in, in my faith walk. God is at work. We know it. We have seen it. The Bible stands as a testament to it. And so by the revelation and power of the Holy Spirit active in our lives, we are also witnesses for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We are his witnesses. Used in his mission to bring about his kingdom. As the church in America, you know, we acknowledge this. We don't fight it. It's in the Bible, so we know that it's true. We know that we are supposed to be witnesses. But often, we go about doing it in an improper and somewhat ineffective manner. Now, yes, God can use and, and he can work through anything. But here's where we typically go when we want to know, when we think about witnessing in America today. We read Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This passage is fantastic. I love this passage. 
Jesus is laying out how he shines through us that all may see him active in our lives. And when we read verse 16, you know, then we get even more excited because we read that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. And we can read that and then we think, got it. Awesome. I I just need to live a good moral life. And that that counts as being a witness. If I go to church, if I don't swear, if I drink less than my neighbor, if I just keep up to this checklist of moral living, if I just stick to this, you know, this this list of how I'm supposed to behave, then I'm then I'm being a witness. And as people are witnessing what I'm doing, how I'm living, then they'll glorify God. People will be saved through observing my good works. Do we take it there? Do we go that far in our thought process? Because if we go that far in our thought process, then we are going too far. If we are relying on our works to God, going to church, etc., to be our witness, then we are not being an accurate witness. Can our work save us? No. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if our works cannot save us, how can we expect our works to save anyone else? Now don't misunderstand me. God desires that we obey him. He desires that we go to church and fellowship with the body. He wants us to read the Bible. He wants us to pray. He wants us to live morally sound lives. These are all good things. These are all things that he wants of his people, but they do not encompass the entirety of what Jesus is talking about when he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what is he talking about? Let's take a closer look at the the good deeds part. Martin Luther once made what was seen and by some is still seen as a pretty controversial statement. He said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. How do I feel about that? It's a little... uh, You know, he's not wrong. God doesn't need our good works. They will not make him any more powerful, any more magnificent, any more loving, any more just, any more omniscient. God is not dependent on us to live moral lives so that he can still be God. I don't have to make sure that I pray enough times during the day in order for God to be able to still be God. You don't have to make sure you're in the pew on Sunday in order for God to be able to keep his promises, in order for God to be able to have his power. God asks us to pray and to fellowship in the word and with other believers, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. It is good for me to pray and fellowship and read the Bible. And do the things that he wants me to do. Because it draws me closer to him. It draws me closer to him. 
It is not for his benefit. It is for mine. It's for my neighbor. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So how does that perspective change how we read Matthew 5, 18? That they may see your 16, but that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How does that perspective change how we view being a witness? And it can mean many different things. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit is going to call you to serve your neighbor. But know that God is calling you to serve your neighbor. That's a common theme in Scripture, serving others, serving our neighbor, and letting the love and grace of God overflow in our lives and into the lives of those around us. And doing all of this to bring glory to God. Now, hey, I've, I've seen witnessing happen through a life led by the Holy Spirit. But typically only because the living led to a conversation. Hey, Dan, I, I notice you don't, you don't like cuss at work. What's up with that? How do we answer that question? Do we say, well, it's because I'm a Christian and God doesn't want me to swear? Or do we say, man, it's, you know, it's God at work in me. I, I've had my fair share of weak moments when it comes to my language. But God's been working on me. You know, he's been, he's been shaping me into the man he wants me to be. And it's only through his strength that I'm able to keep my tongue in check. When our witness is works, how easy is it for our witness to become this is what we're supposed to be instead of this is what God has enabled me to be. If our witnesses works, then when people see the church, when they see Christians, man, they feel judged. They feel like they don't belong, like like it's a club they have no chance of getting into because it's for perfect people. And when Christians expect there to be no sin in the lives of those that are in the church, when we say, hey, we're Christians now, so all these shenanigans need to stop, and this is how you need to conduct your life, then we are speaking above our pay grade, as it were. Not everyone is going to be the Apostle Paul and have a Damascus Road experience and then do a 180 in the way that they live their lives. In fact, the majority are not going to have it happen for them like that. And instead, they're going to change slowly over time as the Holy Spirit works on them, convicting them, drawing them to himself. And if we are putting ourselves in charge of their change, in charge of their turnaround, then we are attempting to do the job of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's what he says he is going to do. It's what the Bible clearly tells us that he does. He works on the hearts of his people, constantly shaping us, working on us, using the law to curb our lives, our thoughts, our actions, and to call us back into a stronger, deeper relationship with God. That's the job Of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are times that we are called to confront our brothers and sisters in their sin. There are times where we are called to do that. But every time we are called to confront a fellow member of the family of God is in a spirit of gentleness. With care. 
with concern for the one who is struggling. It is not as a bouncer at the door checking credentials, letting some people in and telling others that they aren't allowed. It's as a brother or sister who deeply cares about the struggle of their friend and desires to help. This is something that the church as a whole has really struggled with. And it's had a really negative effect on our witness. We, as the church, tend to want Christians to look like, sound like, and act like. We expect them you know, to look like, sound like, and act like. We want, a how, we want a look how good I am now community instead of a look at what God has done in me community. Because if we focus on what God has done, then we are openly recognizing the sin that we were once slaves to. And since we have a culture that is focused on works, we don't want anyone to know about the sin that we were once slaves to and the sin that though we are slaves to it no longer, we sometimes fall back into. To put that more succinctly, due to the church's works-based culture, We don't want anyone knowing about the sin that we struggle with. The sin that used to enslave us and the sin that we still wrestle with to this day. We are uncomfortable with sin. It's going to sound strange, but in one way, that's that's not healthy. Well, in one way, that is healthy because we don't want to be comfortable with sin. Of course not. Of course, we don't want to be comfortable with sin. But we've taken it to the other extreme where sin is so uncomfortable that to confess it to a brother or sister in Christ is scary because we don't know what the fallout will be. And that's not the witness that God has called us to. Tulian Chavidjan was a pastor at a large Presbyterian church down in Florida. Man, he's a gifted speaker and author. And his star was, was rising pretty quickly in the church here in North America But he stepped down from his ministry after it came to light that he had participated in multiple affairs, one while he was a pastor and one while he was not. And while he has been out of the limelight for a while, he recently started up a blog by the name of Sinner and Saint. I'm going to read uh, just an excerpt from a blog post that he put up this past week entitled Reflections from the Subway. In the blog post, he talks about how there is a gap between those that go to church and those that do not the Christians and the non-Christians. And he says that he is not sure how to bridge that gap. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Tillian writes, But I do know this. Recovery institutions. So he doesn't know how to bridge the gap, but I do know this. Recovery institutions, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, have figured out that the best people to reach those who have bottomed out are those who have bottomed out themselves. Who, for instance, is able to reach an alcoholic? A fellow alcoholic. So as long as the church remains the only recovery institution in all of society that does not want former junkies in the pews and leading the way, the disconnect will remain. Church will continue to be seen by outsiders as a place where good people go to hear another good person tell them how to be better people rather than a league of the guilty. If God has taught me anything over the past three years, he writes, it's this. He wants me in the subway. He wants me where the people are. 
Living with broken sinners, sharing my story with them and hearing their stories and together rejoicing in our Savior, who is the friend of sinners, the healer of the broken and the lover of the shamed. And I challenge the church to do the same, to do the hard work of transforming itself from a castle of purity where only the morally fit feel comfortable to a basement of grace where broken sinners are embraced and forgiven. Then, and only then, in transparency, in honesty, in the subway of mercy, will we see Jesus meet us to do what he does best. Heal, restore, and love. Now, while I may take issue with the wording here or there in in, in what he says, I think that he's spot on in the overall arc of his statement. Listen to how the Apostle Paul admonishes the Colossians to approach ministry. I read it this morning, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. And he's, he's just finished asking them for prayer as he continues in his ministry. And then he gives them this piece of godly advice. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Man, Paul's words to the Colossians hold such relevance and truth for us today as well. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, towards those who are not of the faith. Not that we should be scared of them, not that we should avoid them, but that we should make the most of every opportunity with conversations that are full of grace so that we are able to relate to communicate, to reach out to everyone. God wants us on the subway. He wants us in the living rooms of our friends. He wants us in the cubicles of our workplaces. He wants us where the people are. He wants us where the people are. Living with broken sinners, sharing our story of brokenness and redemption, He wants us listening to their stories and pointing all of it to Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, the healer of the broken, and the lover of the shamed. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As we grow here at Calvary, you know, I don't know who's going to come through that door. I don't know who God is calling to bless us with or who he is going to allow us to be a blessing to. But as we grow by going into the community and as the community comes into this church, brace yourselves. Some of them are going to have some things in their history that may be pretty shocking to a lot of us. But that's okay. There is no one that God can't save. And each and every one of us stands as a testament to that. God has saved each of us through faith, not by works. What a gift. What a blessing. What a powerful, wonderful, and amazing God we serve. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray.